I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's up, y'all, and welcome back to the Barton and Bud podcast. A little, a little weird to be doing this without Barton. Uh, we will have Barton on for a, a final episode uh, of the podcast feed to discuss his new role with Vanderbilt. Obviously, huge congratulations to a good friend of mine and, and you know former colleague who's now going to be running the recruiting show at Vandy whenever that's official. We'll have Barton back on, um, but we do have a national championship to uh, to preview and maybe look back a little bit at what we saw in the semifinals and I was thinking who I wanted to have on to do this and you know a lot of a lot of good potential guests but a guy who I really enjoy you know following I think first you know started following him on, on Twitter is uh, is is Deontay Lee guy on under on Twitter underscore or excuse me at D Lee underscore TPC like the golf tournament at D Lee underscore TPC also the post corner cleveland.com and the defensive coordinator at Mar Vista High School there in in SoCal so Deontay man what welcome to Barton and Bud thank you man I've been listening for a while I'm definitely more than excited to join so this is a this is a really fun national championship matchup it, it doesn't necessarily feel you know predetermined to me um and I, I think we learned a lot about at least one of these teams in, in the semifinal the other one maybe not quite as much but one thing I put out this week this is the most talented by the blue chip ratio at least national championship ever i mean you have alabama with 83 percent of its roster recruited as blue chips ohio state with 80 that's absurd um i mean that that is that is just incredible and when you watch these teams it's it's hard to judge them sometimes because athletically they're just so much better than even the sec and high quality big 10 teams that they play like there's just a difference that they've out recruited the rest of the league for the most part, I mean, Georgia's got dudes, obviously, and Florida's got dudes on offense. This is, uh, to me, this is a difficult matchup to break down at times just because of the athleticism that you don't see from opponents. Like, how do you figure out what's real? Absolutely, and I've I've referenced uh, the blue chip ratio in, in previewing this because it is kind of ridiculous now that I'm looking at teams in the 60s, high 50s, and I really feel like they would not have a shot. You know, it will be a blowout if they were to face off against these two teams. So it does make it difficult trying to do like prep and find like quality of opponent that lines up. So I've had to go back and watch like Oklahoma in the semifinal when they played Alabama to see, okay, what does it look like when there are two receivers who are elite? How do how do they respond to that? Ohio State gets almost nothing like this from a competition standpoint in their conference play. So before the playoff, you really don't have a feel for exactly how teams will match up. You know, I think that we kind of got hit in the face with that with Clemson a little bit. You know, a lot of people had assumptions that because the ACC is a little bit weaker, we don't get a good look at where the atrophies are for Clemson's talent. And we kind of got to wake up for that. So national championship game, this is something to me that's been kind of unprecedented. We're seeing this spike in offensive production from teams. 
Um, and yeah, like you said, the, the talent disparity between teams like this that are in this tier versus the rest of the nation, we really don't have much of a point of reference for matchups like these anymore. So what, one thing that we always play on this show, and the show's only around, been around for a year, so but I, I don't see any reason not to play it, is the does the opponent have the receivers to match up with the Alabama game? Just to refresh the listeners, this is just a hard and fast rule that I've been tracking for about a decade now. Nick Saban is a defensive backs coach at heart. You know, before before he was a DC, he was a DB coach. You know, with Belichick there in Cleveland, he recruits absolute studs at corner. And if he can play your guys with you know one on one matchups on the outside, and you can't beat him, he's not going to come out of that. And yeah. he's going to you know he's going to bring pressure, get ball out of your quarterback's hands quickly. Again, just the rundown here are the Nick Saban losses at Alabama uh, in the games that we're going to define them as basically trying. So I'm going to take out that Utah loss uh, because I'm not really sure that they cared all that much about that game. Utah fans can send the hate mail to uh, barton.simmons at cbsa.com. <laughs> so, uh, UFO8, Harvin Murphy Hernandez, 2010 LSU, Ruben Randall, 2010 South Carolina, a little guy named Ashlon, or, uh, Alshon Jeffrey, uh, 2011 LSU, Ruben Randall, and a dude named Odell, even though they didn't mm-hmm. throw that much that year. Uh, 2012, AM had a guy named Evans, pretty good. 13, Auburn, Sammy Coates, Ricardo Lewis. They busted in the NFL, but they you know still got picked fairly high, second and fourth round. Uh, and they beat Alabama that year despite the fact they had a corner playing quarterback or a guy who was a corner at Georgia. Yeah. Uh, 14 old Miss, everybody knows, Ingram and Treadwell, 14 Ohio State. A, a team that I don't think at the time we knew how good those guys were going to be, but Thomas, Samuel, and Smith on that, that 14 Ohio State team. 15 old Miss again, Ingram, Treadwell, and Cody Core, tight end who went in the sixth round. 16 Clemson, Kane, Leggett, Williams, Renfro, Auburn, 2017 the one that doesn't fit the most to me just Slayton but uh 2018 Clemson Ross Higgins Renfro and 2019 LSU Chase Jefferson Moss Marshall still ridiculous to say uh and then obviously Williams who I think will go pretty high in the draft most likely uh from Auburn in 19 and uh what's his name the the track star from South Florida yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly so with that said I, I believe Ohio State passes this test uh and Generally, if they don't pass that test, we just kind of skip forward to the next game. But there is no game to skip forward to, so I'm really glad that they do pass this test because we actually have a matchup to talk about because Garrett Wilson is ridiculous. I mean, yeah. he was wearing out my battery at that 7-on-7 seven seven final at Adidas when he was just mossing everybody there. And Chris Olave is no slouch. The one thing, I guess we'll start here. They, they kind of sucker punched Clemson a little bit in, in that game. What... We we had speculated on the show. Look, we know they have more talent than Clemson. They, they we kind of compared them to that 2014 Ohio State team. They hadn't really played at that elite level yet, but you know they've got dudes, and so if they can get it together, there may be a gear they can get into that they haven't shown us yet. Deontay, they found that gear, but how in your mind, how did they find that? So I think it actually it starts with the Northwestern game and the run game. Trey Sermon being a hundred percent, I think really kind of opened things up for them. Um, people have referenced this, you know, throughout the year, you could tell early in the year, Ryan Day was kind of showcasing what Justin Fields could do as a quarterback. And it was extremely efficient throughout the beginning of the year. He was having games with more touchdown passes and incompletions and all of that. But as the season is drawn on um, and teams are a little bit more prepared to double Ohio State's best receivers, 
Um, they have had to rely a little bit more on the run game. So that's where I think it starts. And then, you know, from a scheme perspective, things like formation in a boundary. So putting all of your receivers to the short side of the field, putting your tight ends, your backs to the field, that clearly gave Clemson issues. And a lot of teams do that for specific reasons. Some teams do that to throw to a single receiver out to the field because you get one-on-one coverage. Um, but in the case of Ohio State, they did that to throw deep. And that was something that I think that Clemson was not prepared for. So formation of the boundaries, just for, just for listeners at, at home who, who might not know, and, and obviously podcasts, a visual medium, formation in the boundary is basically more players into the short side of the field, more, more skill guys, right? So you, you have five receiving options. That, that means loading at least three guys into the short side of the field. This is a bigger deal in college than the pros because the hash marks in college are wider. So you actually have you know, real like your field side is legitimately much much wider than the boundary side of the formation is. That's why sometimes you'll see these corners who play field corner in college, their numbers look amazing. And part of it is just because most of these college quarterbacks don't have the ability to really threaten and throw the ball over their head, you know, accurately to the wide side of the field. Um, are you surprised that Clemson was not able to to adapt to this? Partially, but I think really it was just the fact that they were at a talent deficit at DB. Some of the answers that they had, I think, was fine. A lot of teams play cover three like they did when they get formation in the boundary or play softer zones. They were, they just had an issue of Chris Olave running past the deepest player, you know, or Garrett Wilson finding a seam against the deepest player that they had in zone coverage. So there's not an answer for that. Of a guy is faster than the guy you have deepest, there, there really is no answer for that. Um, I was surprised to see that it went on for as long as it did. It's one thing that, you know, maybe you hit a shot in the second or third quarter and that's kind of your big game breaking play. But it was drive after drive after drive, deep shot, deep shot, deep shot, you know, just marching down the field. That that was the part that really shocked me. What, one thing that, that interested me uh, and going into the game, we speculated about this. Said, OK, what might Ohio State break out that that Clemson hadn't seen? And they really had not run Justin Fields all that much, but. Mm-hmm. You know, for those of us who saw Justin as, as a recruit, I mean, I, I thought his game stylistically and physically, the, the comparison is not there. But I always thought it, it you know, when when you watch the movie Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, mm-hmm. and, and and they they hit him with, with the ray that, that that shrinks him back or you know grows him back up. It was almost like like a jumbo Russell Wilson, right? Like the way he moved around, and, and there's obviously the baseball comparison there too. They were running the heck out of fields early in that game, and, and until you know he got hurt, he was on pace for like 150 rushing yards. That yeah. th- to me, it's it's impressive that Ohio State had that other stuff they could go to. When I think clearly one of their early early inclinations was was to run fields a, a pretty good bit, and then he gets hurt, and they still are able to bomb it, you know, all, all over Clemson, and and you know able to use that formation in the boundary to to get deep. Spinning this forward to Alabama, mm-hmm. right? How much of the effectiveness of this for Ohio State, and maybe it was one touchdown worth, two touchdowns worth, how much of that do you would would you attribute to the element of surprise in that that it's not something that Ohio State has shown a lot? And how much of a disadvantage do you think it is for Ohio State that Alabama has now seen this specifically from from the Buckeyes? To me, I think that to answer the first half of your question, the formation and the boundary stuff, I think was the difference in the game for them offensively. So that and to me that won't happen again um 
A, because your opponent has already seen it, and B, because your opponent is Nick Saban in Alabama. And he's he's the kind of guy that will have an answer for that. I still expect to see a good bit of it. I don't think that that was a one-time thing um, because it was a very effective way for um, Ohio State to manufacture space, you know, getting their fast guys from the short side of the field and running posts back to the wide side. Um, that's a really good way to kind of counteract the way the teams like to double receivers or keep some kind of like um, – guy over the top, you know, so I expect to see it again. I just don't know if it'll be as effective. You may not see the 56, 67 yard touchdown passes, um, but they can still find some offense with it. Which is interesting because you know, just look, looking at, at Bill Connolly's stats, my former podcast partner and now at ESPN, you know, Bill shows that one of the, I don't know if you call it a weakness, but but certainly one of the the non-strengths of this Alabama defense, they're, they're 90th. In, uh, in in passing marginal explosiveness allowed. So when Bama gets hit, it usually is a big pass play. In in watching Alabama this year, when they've given up the big pass play, is it something that is similar to what Ohio State did to Clemson? Yes and no. I would say yes in the sense that because they do play a lot of one-on-one coverage on the outside, that is what you're inviting. Um, and that's just kind of the MO of Saban is if you're going to beat me, you're going to beat me with your best guy on my best guy out on the perimeter, you know, and that's what they'll live with. Um, so you will see that. We'll definitely see some opportunities for that. It's going to be up to Ohio State's receivers to beat uh, Job and Sertan and their defensive backfield. Um, so that's really kind of where the matchup will be decided. I watched some of the Florida game, you know, even though Florida for as close as the score looked, I would not say that they were ever really in it. Um, but when they were rolling offensively in the second and third quarters, you saw guys like Kyle Pitts up the seam um, early in the game. They were able to hit Kadarius Tony um, out on the sideline. So the opportunities will be there. Um, I think my concern is because I'm still not very sure where their tight ends are at as receiving threats that's kind of where my concern is as far as like, if they're not able to separate from Alabama's linebackers and they don't have to commit safeties to cover those guys the way that Alabama did against Florida and Kyle Pitts, then maybe the space won't be there. But again, Saban lives and dies with his corners and one-on-one coverage. So I would not be surprised if we saw at least five or seven snaps where that's kind of where the game is decided is whether or not they're able to get those big chunk plays out on the perimeter. The tight end point you bring up is, is really interesting to me as well. I, I, you know, I haven't watched every single snap of Ohio State this year, but but I don't recall them throwing the ball to the tight ends quite as much as they did against Clemson, and and you know, using some of that play action out of twelve personnel. Um, that to me also seems like something that maybe just the the their the frequency with which they they were going to the tight end in the passing game against Clemson maybe caught the Tigers a little bit off guard. And I'm, I'm wondering, similar to the receiver question, how much do you think they can replicate that against Alabama? Because again, say, you're DC, Saban just saw it. Yeah. Um, may, again, it's hard to say that it'll be to the effect of 49 points. You know, I, I don't I just don't know if that's where it's at. I've never been a big fan of Dylan Moses as a cover guy. I think he's a good athlete, but not a plus coverage guy. So if they're, if they can find a way to isolate a matchup with a Rucker, you know, against Moses, maybe you can find that kind of size mismatch. And Notre Dame did have a few opportunities in the past game to get the ball to their tight ends. What I think the issue was is they couldn't hold up in protection. So, and that's where you kind of get into the trade-offs. One thing that Ohio State likes to do with their downfield passing is 
max protect. So they're going to leave their tight end and running backs in, you know, and have seven in protection and three guys out in the route. That's something that can work if you're looking for downfield shots, but again, you're subtracting a receiving threat. So, you know, they do have to make those decisions on trade-offs and if they can hold up in protection and protection with five linemen, then maybe we'll see more, more opportunities for a Rucker to, you know, get downfield against, against uh, Dylan Moses and the rest of the linebacking core. That, 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 that pass protection battle for Ohio State is going to be fascinating. I, I did not expect Bama's defensive line to win that often against Notre Dame. I, I thought Notre Dame's offensive line was pretty good. Now, losing their top two centers, I, I think, contributed to some of the protection issues. They they had a couple free runners allowed, but they also just had some, you know, like there were some busts, but they also just had guys just get whipped. Yeah. And that's, that's not a great sign if you're playing this Alabama team right now, if their defensive line is just going to, you know, round into form, right? They they have some some guys who were former you know five and four star freaks. Will Anderson, we we loved his recruit. We 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 had him as a five star after the All American Bowl, where just nobody could block him. Uh, Tim Smith, who's three hundred and thirty something pounds, was actually playing left field as a sophomore. Wow, I mean, he, down in South Florida, like he's eventually grew out of it. But I was talking to his coach down there in the twenty twenty. I think 2018 Nike mm-hmm. opening camp down there or back when it was still the Nike opening. And he's like, yeah, he also plays left field. That dude plays left field. Like that, <laughs> right. that just shows you the kind of, a, a kind of ability that they're working with uh, there at, at, at Alabama. And obviously Ohio state recruits at about that level. What run game wise. And I think we have to just record this whole show with the assumption that Ohio state's going to be healthy. I, I'm yeah. not going to like, there's no real use for us to get into speculation of who will and won't play. And let's assume that that field is, is healthy, but I think we can reasonably assume maybe he's not hundred percent healthy because the, the shot he took. Yeah. Can they effectively keep Alabama off, off balance with, with, with the run game? If fields is not a big part of it. Tough. Every, almost any game that we see where Alabama's opponents are effective running the ball, the quarterback has been a big piece of it. Um, you know, reequating those numbers. So making a defense play 11 on 11, in the run game, that's usually your best bet. You know, a lot of teams, it's one thing to scheme up where you'll have space and gaps, but the issue with playing against Alabama is your run scheme is only as good as winning your one-on-one blocking matchups, and you don't do that very often against them. Um, You know, I think that there's been some attrition with them up front and with their linebacking core from what peak Alabama defense has been, but it's still dudes. You know, you're still dealing with some freaks up front, so – Without Fields as a runner, it's tough. Trey Sermon would have to have a not necessarily a Northwestern game in terms of production, but effect on the game. He would have to be able to carry that entire running load on his back, you know, especially with Teague kind of being in and out of the lineup. So it's gonna be it's gonna be difficult, I think. Not as easy as it's been the last couple of weeks. That'll certainly be a matchup to watch here. Uh, one last thing with this Ohio State offense against Alabama's defense, Nick Saban's defense is actually. He's had some issues with formation into the boundary with, with, with some of his coverage checks. And as a defensive guy, I'm sure you can explain you know, the, the type of coverage checks you have to make when you get formation into the boundary, especially if, if you're calling if you're calling your defense to the strength, right? Um, yes. Specifically here, a guy who's been a thorn in his side who happened to get fired this year, Gus Malzahn, uh, r- r- routinely was able to get guys running free in his secondary. Uh, Hugh Freeze did it at times uh, back when he was at Ole Miss. And even going down the... Uh, the the Nick Saban coaching tree, famously in that national title game where Jeremy Pruitt was coordinating Florida State's defense, 
Auburn hits like a 70 yarder and then they additionally, I think they get Ricardo Lewis free again, totally uncovered because Florida State blows a check to, mm-hmm. to you know, to, to trips to the boundary. Uh, at, when you know, Pruitt obviously off the saving tree, that was 2013. H- how has Nick changed the way his defense is called in response to some teams maybe finding, uh, the kind of exhaust port on the Death Star, right? Like, hey, maybe right. if they if they mess this coverage check up enough, we can get some shots. So I'm glad you brought this up. Um, in the coaching community, there was a clinic that Kirby Smart gave where he kind of detailed this whole thing. Like, this was not just an issue. Um, so that way listeners can kind of understand that this was like an identity crisis level of problem where they had to change a lot of what they did defensively because like Clemson does now, they used to call their defense to the field. They, they would consider the field the strength, um, which makes sense, right? Generally speaking, offenses align to where they have the most space. That, that's what makes sense, especially with college or high school hash marks. Um, now what they'll do is they set their nickel. So that third corner, third safety type, they set him to the receiver strength. So if they go trips in the boundary, I think Saban now feels like he still has answers because he's got a numbers advantage to where you put the most receivers. So that way you're not going to see things where they have maybe their third best cover guy just out covering space to the field and a linebacker having to walk out and go cover a Garrett Wilson in the slot. You know, those are the types of things that you would see earlier, you know, from 2013 to 2016, when they, when it really looked like maybe that saving tree of defense was slipping a bit. Um, that was kind of what was behind it. But teams like West Virginia, Auburn, you've mentioned, um, Ohio State in the playoff game, hit them with this a couple of times. Things like tempo and formation at a boundary have been a thorn in the side for the saving tree um, of defensive coaches for a while. I do think now you'll probably see a little bit more of an evened out type of type of game plan. So you'll see their best guys covering Ohio State's best guys a little bit more often. What what year was, was that clinic? If people want to look for, it? is that twenty fifteen? That was so. This was this clinic was while Kirby was at Georgia. So this may have been twenty eighteen. It's a Nike Coach of the Year clinic. Um, okay. I can find the link because I have it, and I will post it for uh, for people who want to watch it, and I'll make sure that I get it to Bud as well, so you guys can all see that. We'll we'll try and throw that in the show notes as well. I yeah, I remember Tom Herman coming there and actually, you know, discussing with uh, with, with Nick Saban how they had had attacked that defense after that 2014 uh, title game. Mm-hmm. This, this has been fun. I, I I think I think Ohio State's got a legit shot to score points here, just you know, based, based on our conversation and, and the personnel that we know they have. Um, when we come back from the break, we will talk about the other side. Does Ohio State have a shot to stop this Alabama offense? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. 
Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, so we're back now on the Barton and Bud podcast. Our guest, Deontay Lee, you can follow him on Twitter at dlee underscore tpc. He's on the post corner. He's on cleveland.com. Defensive coordinator of Mara Vista High School there in SoCal. Awesome film breakdowns. I, I think it's a, a really worthwhile follow to hit up Deontay. So we just got done talking about Ohio State's offense against Alabama's defense. Some of the stuff Ohio State does is, is stuff that you know has been a Bama weakness in the past, uh, but you know Saban has tried to adjust for it. Now on the other side, this is a uh, this is a bit of a different animal here. This this Bama offense is it's kind of automatic. They they, they have ridiculous talent all over the field. We we know about Devontae Smith. John Mechie has been a pleasant surprise. Not in that we didn't know his talent. We had him rated highly, but that he's emerged this quickly. I think it's been a pleasant surprise for Alabama. Uh, their offensive line is just ridiculous. Um, and then they also they, they add in some other elements that I've noticed this year that are, are, are different. Um, they're, they're not just the typical college offense. They're, they're very motion heavy, um, and, and they, 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 they have all these other elements you have to account for as a defense. They're not just, hey, we have good players and we're going to RPO all the time, right? They They'll get in heavy sets and they'll go hard play action. They they certainly do the RPO stuff and and I take this wherever you want to take it. But when I watch these guys and, and I, I like watching the lines, it does seem like their offensive line for the tide just it, it just provides them the ability to do so much uh, so many other things that other teams just can't do because they can protect it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but. To your to your point about what they do on offense, it does get a little uh, monotonous. You know, if you watch one team, it's why the Y is off the tight ends off the ball. They got three receivers split out. It's split zone. It's RPOs. You know, and that's all basically all you see. But when you watch a team like in Alabama, it's it's shocking to see how much offense they run. So the motions, as you mentioned, the hard play action, they'll run old school outside zone. You know, I've seen them run buck sweep you know, which is like an old school wing T play with Najee Harris. Um, they will take their deep downfield shots. Any offense you can think of that you've liked in the last 10 to 15 years, they have some kind of element of it. Um, I've seen the run mesh better than air raid teams. So, you know, they've got a little bit of everything. And I do think that it starts with what they are or what they have up front. If they want to just protect with five and play like LSU did last year and go empty, they can do so. They've got the talent on the outside and they can protect Mac Jones long enough to do so. If they want to bring in two tight ends or a tight end and a fullback and mash you in the face with power and inside zone and dive and all those things, they can do that as well. And, you know, especially when they had Waddle available and we'll see kind of what his status is. Um, going into the title game but when they want to they can go four or three wide and go through all your kind of pro style progressions if they need to as well so they've got a little bit of everything it it, it really is ridiculous I, I I've always kind of liked Mac Jones I, I saw him a lot in the seven on seven circuit in, in the state of Florida and seven on seven is not you know is it, not real football but it, it's not nothing um, right. I, the one thing I like about Jones in this offense is I don't know that he's the best at evading pressure but he is very comfortable operating with bodies around him. And there's a difference to me. Like, you know, evading, evading a free runner because you got a bust is one thing. And I don't think he's great at that at all. Right. But he does not seem to be rattled when, when there's pocket compression around right. him. And I think that's a huge deal because 
a lot of quarterbacks do not like operating with bodies around him. Jones seems to have uh, confidence, justified confidence, I would say, that all right, these guys are getting close to me, but they're not actually going to touch me. Mm-hmm. And he keeps his eyes downfield really well, I, I think. Um, you're not able to get him off his spot very much, and, and he's not a guy that has to – I don't think he has to reset all that much. He's just comfortable kind of standing there, understanding that the line is going to allow him to 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 get the ball off. I, I, I know you, you reposted something earlier, or did you post it and then, and then Tyson had – I was talking to I was talking to Nate Tice about it, and then he drew it up and posted it and tagged me in it, and then I dropped the video for it so people had a, a visual reference for it. it. It's just the ability for Alabama to just explain this play if you if you can for the podcast, but it just struck me as absurd that they could protect this with with a five man protection. So everybody's out in a route. It's just the offensive line protecting, and it's a play that most college teams against good defenses just can't do this. Yes, yeah, so. It's been explained to me as a climb concept, but ba- basically what it is is well, what Alabama does with it. They flare out the back. So the back is just sprinting out on like a swing pattern. He's the check down. You've got two fade ball, two fade routes on the outside. One of the slot receivers is running like an over route, a crossing route. So think like 15 to 18 yards deep right in front of the middle of field safety. And then Devontae Smith, who is in the other slot, he runs what looks like a drag and then he just climbs up the field, almost going to like the opposite pylon. This is a play that takes four and a half to five and a half seconds before the ball's even in the air. And they were able to protect it. Like when I say protect it, I don't just mean he let it go as he was getting a helmet in his chest. He was comfortable enough to step up in the pocket, wait, it was clean. And then he got to throw a great ball to a wide open receiver. And teams just can't do that. The list of teams who do, it's like Oklahoma. And we know that, they're kind of, they have a great reputation for being able to protect with five guys. They, they always develop and recruit well up front. LSU had the offensive line to do stuff like this. They didn't do it a bunch, but they had the line to do it. Last year, a team like an Ohio State maybe can do it, but you're looking at very thin, you know, a very thin list of teams who can pull something like that off. And when you can do stuff like that, the possibilities are endless for you as an offense. And you've been in these coaching meetings. Like, if if the offensive coordinator suggests running this, more than likely the head coach is going to be like, "No, we, we, we are you crazy? We can't protect that." Like, no, get get this out of here. You know, and the offensive line coach way. is like, "What?" We're, we're, yeah, it's a great way to get an expo marker thrown at you by the offensive line coach. <laughs> yeah. So, Ohio State, great offensive game against Clemson, but they they did still allow four hundred something yards passing yeah. to Trevor Lawrence in watching. We'll get to what Ohio State did well defensively, but I think to to keep this conversation about Bama's offense for now, what did Clemson do offensively that, that you think Alabama can replicate? So, the thing we'll like, want to replicate, I guess. I mean, number one, and I hate having to harp on this so much because it makes me sound like I don't like the player, and I do, <laughs> but it's attacking Sean Wade. That was. Anytime they needed a completion, Clemson, in that game, it was Norman Powell on Sean Wade. And it was any route you can think of, whether it was a fade, a corner route, a curl route, you know, a 10-yard in, anything that you can think of, that's where they attacked. So that's kind of what I'd be looking for for Alabama. They obviously have the horses on the outside to do so. Um, Wade, for for what he does provide to a defense as a cover guy, one-on-one coverage out on an island is not really his thing. And that that would be the thing I would be looking for Alabama to attack early and often. 
All right, so let me ask you this then. Ohio State kept leaving him out there, right? At some point, this is a conscious decision by the Ohio State defense to do that. So let me ask you're DC. Let me ask you, why did they elect to keep leaving Sean Wade out there on that island in which he was repeatedly getting kind of embarrassed on that island? Is it because, I mean, this is your opinion. I, we haven't talked to the Ohio State staff, I assume. If you have, then this podcast is like double off. <laughs> but is it because they're trying to protect their other guys in the secondary? Like, are there other guys in the secondary they feel worse about? So they're like, all right, just pick your poison. So I was talking with uh, Seth Galena about this on a PFF's podcast. And I think that, and he mentioned the fact that Ohio State played maybe 11 snaps of nickel that weren't like obvious third and long passing situations or end of game kind of two minute scenarios. And really what I think it is, is they've just made a decision that their best 11 guys is just their base personnel guys. So they have three true linebackers, two true safeties and their two corners. And I think they've just decided that the best way to protect their linebackers who are not cover guys is to just play single high cover three, cover one defense. And I guess they've just kind of made that made that decision that they're going to live with their corners being by themselves, even if it costs them a few big plays. So we really don't expect them to do that much different here. I'd be shocked. I, I would be shocked if Kerry Coombs had anything different than what they've been doing all year. Because I, I don't think Seven Banks is a bad player. You know, no. it, it just whoever draws the Devontae matchup, that's going to be difficult. I mean, he, yeah. we talk about these guys coming back for their senior seasons, and and I mean, Smith is legitimately like having an NFL player on your on your college football team, and a good mm-hmm. one. You know, yeah. just the the way he runs routes and and the the toughness and and the ability to catch the ball. And I I like that he and Judy had this similar thing. I Judy might have been a little bit better at this, but I, I think the the thing just being a guy in South Florida that I always saw with, with with Jerry was every route looked the same. Yes. Always. And it just makes it like you didn't have any tells. I didn't think it was, it was very, uh, you know, Marvin Harrison ish. Yes. Right. Um, yes. In, in Judy's game, which I know we're not supposed to say that name, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so knowing like, like, so if Bama assumes that they're going to get singles on Sean Wade, is Ohio State like are they in trouble here? So the way I've been framing this is, and I'll ask you this question: What's the magic number for Alabama point wise, where Ohio State can feel like they can stay in the game? So I, I was going off on Dabo Swinney a little bit on, on on Twitter about this, and when when his he was making all his decisions to punt the ball, and and my thing is is look, I, I don't think you need to play insanely aggressive or you know optim, optimal strategy, blackjack or whatever. Always go for it. But I do think you need to be generally aware of what the numbers say is going to be required to to win the game. Mm-hmm. And in that game, their over-under was like 78, I think. Yeah. And they were favored by a touchdown. So just off the bat there, Vegas is implying something of like, you know, 43-37. Right. You probably need to have 40 points to yeah. beat Ohio State in this game. And then as a coach, you should be adjusting in-game based on what is happening in the game. So like you should just at least look at look at the over-under and split it in half and say, okay, right. how many points do we need here? Probably 40. Well, the over-under in this game is 75. And Bama's favored by by eight. So I think if, if Bama goes into the game and says, Hey, we need we need 40, I don't I don't see a way. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I think they have to feel pretty damn confident they can get 40. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. most likely, right? Yep. When um, I talk to people, I, I've said that Ohio State needs to feel like we've got to put 45 on the board just to have, you know, a puncher's chance. It's got to be that. When I asked Seth, he said something like 30. And I, when you watch Alabama, every time they touch the ball, they score. It, I, I can't think of, uh, I can't think of a, a pathway for Ohio State to hold them to 30 if it's not like, you know, Mac Jones has his worst game, sack strips and pick sixes. You know, that, that's the only way I can see it. If they can sustain drives, they score. So our, th- th- this is actually a great segue then. What is Ohio State's path, not to stopping Alabama, but to holding them to, let's say, you know, 38, 42, something that's not a 45? Like, what, what, what is Ohio State? Like, can their defensive line win against Alabama like they did against Clemson? Because I thought their D-line might have had one of its best games of the year against Clemson. I mean, they whooped them. It, it was bad, especially by the second half. It, it was bad up front between Ohio State and Clemson. And if you're Kerry Coombs, that's kind of what you got to bank on is something similar. Maybe not exactly that, but something similar. So for them, I'm sure they're saying, we, we know we probably can't cover these guys. So the idea is let's just stop the run. We're going to sell out on stopping the run, hold Najee Harris to, you know, maybe two, three yards per carry. And at least then you create, obvious passing situations and you can kind of and then you can get into doing what they were doing against Clemson which was just jumping the snap timing the cadence and just tearing off up the field and that was how they were able to get pressure on Trevor Lawrence late in the game but if the idea is we can just line up man for man across the board and cover these guys it's gonna be a long one how are they able to jump the snap so well against Clemson? Did, did Clemson have a tell, or were they just falling into the trap of using using a very similar count each time? Because they, they really were getting off the ball extremely well. They stopped Clemson stopped mixing up the cadence, and this is where I put my coaching hat on and start complaining. But the clap cadence thing bothers me in those situations because it is an easy tell. Um, even for guys who try to simulate the fake clap to see if they can find the rotation of the defense – if you're not using vocal cadence, it does get easy. And quarterbacks have tells and in situations where you know the pass is coming or you know they have to get as many plays off as possible in a short amount of time, you can really tear off. Guys aren't going on to, you're not going to get the check with me or, you know, dead count type of stuff. And that was obvious. You know, they were tearing off up a field against uh, Clemson, especially late in the fourth quarter. That, that's a little bit surprising, you know, just given how how veteran of a quarterback you know Trevor Lawrence is, and, and yeah. he doesn't make a, a, a ton of mistakes. Um, right. Additionally, something you know you you said you put on your coaching hat there. Clemson did not have Tony Elliott for that game. Now, the first couple drives, they they were finding the duck for sure mm-hmm. on Ohio State's defense. And, and, yes, you know, like over and over again. And at that point, actually, it wasn't Wade, right? It, it was um. Um, not Borland, but the uh, 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 Warner, the, yeah, that mm-hmm. repeatedly, and I, I feel like that's probably why Ohio. One of the reasons why Ohio State said, "Okay, like eh, you pick on Wade, we, we can't allow this, uh, yeah. to, you know, to, to continue to happen." But if you look at Clemson's efficiency after those first three drives, I mean, it went down a ton. I, th- I think Ohio, I think Ohio State allowed like 150 percent more yards per play in in the first you know couple drives, which I'm going to interpret as them being on script at that yes. point, or at least mostly on script i mean it's 16 plays i think that's that's fairly scripty mm-hmm. you know for, for most teams um i i do wonder how that game looks i think ohio state still wins if tony elliott's there though i don't know that it is quite the blowout um and so i'm interested to see what some of alabama's answers will, will be for this 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was clear I, for as much as I think everybody's trying to avoid making it sound like we're excusing Clemson's loss. We can't understate the fact that not having your offensive coordinator that you've had for multiple years now call plays, you know, in a big game like that. And as you mentioned, I mean, once they were done with their openers, so that 15, you know, those first 15 plays that you have that you're going to run basically no matter what, you know, obviously they carved up Ohio State's defense with that. And that was part of the stuff that I had previewed going into that game was all of their kind of cover three single high beaters. And they basically emptied their clip. They shot all their guns in that first quarter. And I think if you have an offensive coach who has a better feel for the game than a guy who you're asking to go from quarterbacks coach to being the guy calling the plays for you, you probably don't get that stretch of Ohio State touchdown, Clemson punt, Ohio State touchdown, Clemson punt, Ohio State touchdown, turnover on downs. And all of a sudden you look up and you're chasing three scores. So those are the types of things that I think in terms of game control that we're probably not going to see when they're playing off against, when they're facing off against Alabama. Another inter- interesting thing here that, that I, I want to see in this game, you mentioned Clemson or excuse me, Ohio state will probably play, you know, a lot of single high, a lot of cover three type stuff. I don't think they're going to, I don't think you're going to man up uh, Alabama very much. I think you're getting mostly, yeah. you know, cover three looks here and, and, and they'll, they'll, they'll try to match. But I thought Notre Dame, strategy-wise, was pretty much optimal for their personnel against Alabama. You may disagree. If you do, I mean, please let me know. I, I thought, given what they have, they played pretty optimally. They just didn't always execute it very well. Like Their strategy to me was keep everything in front of them, mm-hmm. and then maybe Alabama gets greedy or impatient, and they'll throw you a pick, and if they don't, then try to, you know, try to basically play red zone roulette. As I want, as I like to call it, you know, just, yeah. hey, stuff happens in the red zone, right? It just, it does. It's, and being a great offense in the open field is not always the same thing as being a great offense in the red zone. The tight area is different. The issue with Notre Dame is they didn't tackle anybody. Yeah, <laughs> on those short, on those short throws. I mean, they just got absolutely cooked on the underneath stuff. Do you think Ohio State will try to play a little bit tighter cover three look, or do you think they're going to try to copy the Notre Dame game plan? tackle a little better and then hope that they have some red zone luck. I'd say probably the latter, the the tighter you get to their receivers, the more you're inviting, you know, those bombs over your head. So I would expect that they play a pretty soft cover three, just like Notre Dame did. And as you said, I mean, they kept the game in front of them. All of the explosive plays that Alabama had was Najee Harris jumping over a guy. What do you do about that? (laughs) Nothing, you know, it's Devontae Smith on, you know, that little glance RPO, and then he just runs away from your guy because he's a better athlete than, you know, your nickel corner. That happens. And then it's, you know, a bubble screen where he just outruns the leverage of the defense again. So, but, you know, I think that as a defense, if that's the kind of scheme you have, that's what you live with. So I wouldn't be surprised if they say, hey, we'll line it up, we'll keep you in front of us. And if your athletes are better than our dudes, there's not an answer for that either way anyway. So, you know, we'll kind of live with it that way. So that's kind of where I'm thinking that we'll see it, which is interesting to me in terms of like a possession game. So can they limit Alabama's possessions? Cause like I said, when they touch the ball, they score. So if, if Mac Jones gets, you know, six, seven possessions in the first half, you are in danger of giving up 35 points by halftime. It's something that can happen, you know, and playing red zone roulette probably is their best way for it. Oh, if if Bama gets fifteen possessions, I I think this is over. Like, yeah. I I have a really hard time thinking that that Ohio State can hang with them for that many possessions. As far as you know, matching score for score. Um, yeah. But the pace thing is is curious here. What 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 do you want to do with 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 pace? 
Ohio State is almost never the team that is less talented. Like this is very uncharted territory for them. And yet, if you want to follow Notre Dame game plan, the Irish, you know, once they got off their uh, their script, which they were actually kind of playing some tempo for the opening script, which mm-hmm. threw me off for a minute because I was I was waiting to hit a live under bet in the game. I'm like, as soon as they stop snapping the ball with 23 on the clock, I'm going to fire these unders. But right. they took them like three series. Like, this is, guys, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what, yeah. what are we doing? And then I got like 73 and a half, and it was golden, um, yeah. you know, for, for the undershot. Mm-hmm. But do you think Ohio State tries to limit limit possessions and and, and play a slower game here? It sounds to me, it, it always sounds counterintuitive when you're playing a team as talented as Alabama. But when I think about the teams that have beaten them, almost all of them were tempo teams. Yeah. And that's where you kind of have to make your choice. You know, the Deshaun Watson Clemson team that won was not more talented than, than that Alabama team, in my opinion. I just think they had an advantage at quarterback. And the way that they were able to exercise that advantage was trying to get 99 plays off in a 60 minute game and just wearing down the defense. And you can, if you watch the flow of the game and not the highlights, you see Alabama's killing them up front in the first half, right before halftime, it looks like things are starting to go in a different direction. And then by late in the third to the early fourth quarter, you could tell they were gassed. So I'm interested to see if Ryan Day says to Kerry Coombs, hey, we don't care. We're going to run as many plays as we can and try to get in the end zone as often as we can. It is a tricky situation to ask your team with, a shortened amount of possessions to beat a team that's more talented than you. I think about this kind of ties into basketball, which is another sport I'm interested in. The more talented teams usually play faster. So you ask the less talented teams to play slower. And then you kind of get into that, you know, trade off of well, every turnover we have in a low possession game costs us twice as much, right? Because we have less, less bites at the apple. So for me, I would say you've got a guy like Justin Fields, Maybe you just want to let it hang. You know, if we lose, we lose. They're more talented anyways. I want to make sure that my best player has as many bites at the apple at it as he can get, you know, and if we end up losing the way Florida did where Alabama puts up 50, we put up 40 and we can say it was competitive, even though most people know that we weren't in the game, then, you know, maybe that's as close as we get. That, that Florida Bama game was like an arena league game. It, it, yeah. If you're ever, if you ever, if you've ever bet arena league, especially live stuff, which I know is probably a very niche audience, it's like you gotta, you gotta remember, okay, you're up points and the ball. Like the, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's kind of like, hey, we're, we're up a score and, and you know, we have the ball. It's almost like seven on. Yes. You know, in, in, in some ways, um, this has been fun. Uh, this is just such a fascinating chess match. I, I really hope that Ohio State and then obviously Alabama, uh, both, you know, are like I hope these alleged COVID issues are, are overblown. Um, mm-hmm. I don't say alleged like they're like they're fake. I'm just saying like I hope that we don't you know that they're not holding guys out of the, or that they don't keep guys out of the game. Yeah. You know, hope hope their tests come back clean because this this could be one of the more fun matchups we we have in in quite a while. It, do you have a you got a score prediction? That's tough. Um, I'm gonna say Alabama wins. I will say Alabama wins and. Score-wise, I'll probably say 48 to 35. That's about the range that I'm looking at. I, I actually had 48 in mind as well for, for the Tide. I, I was thinking kind of 48-38, which, I mean, the over that's eight that's 86. You know, I I know the over and under 74, but the two offenses that Bama played that are as good as this offense both scored I mean, about, you know, close to 50 on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 part of that will come down to Justin Fields' health, and you know who else is healthier on the team. 
testing wise, but it, yeah, I think we, I think we probably have shootout making here. This, yeah. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, guys. Really appreciate y'all following Barton and Bud podcast. Also make sure to follow the cover three podcast or sister podcast on CBS. Big thanks to Deontay Lee. This, this was awesome at D Lee underscore TPC at the post corner, cleveland.com and Mar Vista high school defensive coordinator. You guys looking good for next year or well for this uh, year, rather, are, are you, I hope you guys get to well, play. I was going to say, right now, we're still fighting the battle to get on the field. So we'll see. When, once we do, whether it's you know, in the spring or if we have to postpone all this stuff and, and get back to it in the fall, I'm feeling good about what we've got. But right now, the battle is just trying to come to you know some kind of understanding with our state public health authorities and the governor's office as far as timelines with CIF and all that stuff. So a lot of paperwork, bureaucracy stuff. So, so not pleasant, but we're trying to make it happen for the kids. Awesome. All right, man. Enjoyed it. Thank you.